trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You may have heard some rumors floating around that this is a place where wrong thinkers gather. Well, I'm here to confirm those rumors are absolutely true. And I want to welcome you to our ranks. You see, being a wrong thinker, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes, you know, you wrong thinker stated like it's a bad thing. Actually, it's a badge of honor because uh, being a wrong thinker in our time indicates that you're a person who's actually considering what uh, you are consuming, the information that you're taking in to better help you understand the world around you. And sadly, in our time, that means we have to be willing to question a lot of the uh, narrative managers out there who are telling us this is what you're allowed to think. This is uh, the, the allowable range of opinions which you may hold. You know, it's not a matter of being contrarian or just, you know, trying to assert yourself. It's, it's a matter of standing up for your own attachment to reality. And that's what I try to do on a daily basis here on this program with the help of some wonderful sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, also Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, HSLAmmo.com, and GovernYourIncome.com. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's see if we can gain a firmer grasp of reality. And I actually want to spend some time this hour talking a little bit about the danger of being misled by misinformation. I mean, it's it's one thing to just, gee, well, I always thought uh, the moon was made of cheese, but huh, imagine my surprise when I was uh, visiting some traveling exhibit and I saw moon rocks and realized, hey, that's not cheese. No, it's not a simple misunderstanding. It's more like it's more like being gaslit. And if you're not familiar with the term gaslighting, uh, there's there's an old movie, Gaslight, that uh, essentially the plot is a husband is trying to drive his wife crazy, like literally out of her mind. And so he'll adjust the level of the lights and then tell her, honey, you just imagined that. That's not what happened. In fact, to illustrate it, there's a, <laughs> there's a, a great, i got to see if I can find this real quick. It's, it's a great uh, joke. Did you hear the joke about the gas lighter? Yes, you did. You just don't remember it. I'll hold for the for the laughter and applause, but that's that's the gist of it. Don't trust your eyes. Trust me. And right now, there are a number of very dedicated data and information disseminating sources out there whose full-time job is to make sure that you don't really know what to believe. And unfortunately, the people who are doing most of the misleading are the very same people who claim that they're working overtime to protect us from misinformation. So all the fact checkers out there and all the people who are looking over our shoulders, you know, algorithmically trying to keep us from seeing information that could be misinformation. Yeah, they're they're part of their job is to keep us from getting too close to the truth. Case in point, Glenn Greenwald, one of the very few journalists out there who deserves the title journalist, has a, a wonderful post on his Substack, the real disinformation agents. And it's actually about an hour long special it's a video that they've put together but you can watch for yourself as nbc news tells four blatant lies in a two-minute clip 
And the point in sharing this is that the same corporate outlets that most vocally process, profess concern over disinformation are actually the ones who are spreading it most casually. And Glenn Greenwald breaks this down. And NBC's report on Julian Assange is a perfect case study. He says the war on disinformation is now one of the highest priorities of the political and media establishment. In fact, he says it's become the foundational justification for imposing a regime of online censorship. All around the world, new laws are being enacted in its name to empower the state to regulate discourse. And exploiting this cause, a small handful of billionaires are working in unison with Western security state agencies under the guise of neutral-sounding names like the Atlantic Council to set the lines of permissible thought and to decree what is true and false. He says corporate media outlets are attempting to rehabilitate their shattered image by depicting themselves as the bulwark against the rising tide of disinformation. Now, Glenn Greenwald calls it out for what it is. He says it's an understatement to say that this righteous cause is a scam, that its motive is power and control over speech and thought to eliminate dissent and discredit competition rather than some noble quest for truth he says that's it's just this is too self-evident to require explanation no human institutions should be trusted with the inherently tyrannical power they seek to arrogate unto themselves to decree truth and falsity with such authoritative power that views they've decreed false become prohibited off limits even worthy of punishment now he gives a great little historical perspective on this with uh, by saying that a foundational view of the Enlightenment was that truth and falsity are best discovered by humans engaging in free inquiry and appealing to reason and persuasion rather than being captive to the whimsical decrees of centralized authority dictating to citizens what they are and are not permitted to believe. And he says, that's why I believe, as I wrote at length in a 2013 Guardian article, that at the heart of every censor lies hubris, the belief that they are so evolved, so enlightened and superior that they've risen above the eternal human propensity to err, enabling them to ascertain universal truth whose validity is so unassailable, nobody should be permitted to question it, let alone dissent from it. Now, i got to pause for just a second here to ask you, think about all the efforts to keep the vaccine deniers, among other people, you know, in check. That's just one example, but... It's a really prominent one and something that you can very easily verify for yourself. Just, you know, jump online. Read the terms and conditions that Google and YouTube and other major social media platforms and and, uh, big tech platforms have, have recently updated. Glenn Greenwald says, All that said, there is a core truth, an unintentional one, that lies at the crux of this elite war on disinformation. It's absolutely true that U.S. political discourse is drowning in deliberate disinformation campaigns and lies. And Glenn Greenwald says it's also true that this disinformation epidemic is a serious menace, a toxic plague on our democracy and our society. That part they have right. But he says the part that they have, where they've gone wrong, and very, very wrong at that, is how they have identified the most harmful sources of this disinformation. Because it doesn't emanate primarily from Trump boomers on Facebook or dark web QAnon groups or mischievous transgressive teenagers on 4chan. Ordinary citizens are obviously as capable of, as anyone of believing and spreading false assertions. 
but the far more damaging, destructive, organized, and coordinated disinformation campaigns come from major corporate media outlets themselves and their security state partners, particularly the corporate media outlets that uh, that most vocally and flamboyantly claim to be so profoundly concerned about disinformation that they want to censor the Internet in the name of stopping it. They are the ones who spent the last five years flooding the country with a demented CIA-constructed conspiracy about a Kremlin takeover of the U.S., using clandestine sexual blackmail over the president and hallucinating Russian agents hiding under every bed. So many fabrications were disseminated under the rubric of that fairy tale that he says it's genuinely hard to choose the worst. Arguably the most pernicious and prolific disseminator of organized disinformation or at least the disinformation campaigns, is NBC News, which includes its cable unit, MSNBC. Greenwald says we've spent the last several months working on a mini-documentary demonstrating on how many of the coordinated lies from the U.S. security state were spread by a tiny handful of pundits, three of whom, Rachel Maddow, all but official CIA spokesman Ken Delanian, and former Bush-Cheney spokesperson Nicole Wallace, work for NBC News, and he says that report will be published shortly. But he says this week, we produced a rumble video dissecting one specific two-minute segment that NBC aired in order to demonstrate how casually, aggressively, and constantly NBC's highest-paid personalities lie to the public. And as he says in the video, he says, I use the term lie here, not in the way that it's been used by the liberal CNN, NBC, Atlantic, NYT, corporate media axis over the last five years. One, anything Donald Trump and his supporters say. And two, anything that contravenes liberal orthodoxies. Glenn Greenwald says, no, in this report, I use the term lie in its most literal, restrictive, and classic sense. Namely, the assertion of demonstrably false factual claims with either the knowledge that it's false or complete indifference to its truth or falsity. I've got to take a break here, but I hope you'll stick around and be back on the other side of this break to hear where Glenn Greenwald goes with it. I've got a link to the article in the show notes. I hope you'll check that out at thebrianhydeshow.com. Wouldn't you want to know if you were being lied to or being misled? It's not like somebody's trying to you know, punish you or make you feel bad. You dummy. Why did you believe this? It's more like, can you trust what they're telling you? We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Before I dive back into this Glenn Greenwald story, I'm just going to throw a quick reminder out there for you that for a limited time, as in like one more week, you can take advantage of a remarkable food storage special by my sponsor, LifesavingFood.com. Now, maybe you've thought a little bit more about food storage as you've watched food prices going higher and thought, you know, maybe it'd be good to have some set aside for a rainy day. Well, with a 25-year shelf life, hey, that's a pretty good start right there. You buy the food at today's prices, knowing that, yes, prices are likely to continue to go higher, but eventually you're going to eat that food. So it's this is, this is actually one of the better investments people can make, not because, oh, it's going to make me tons of money, but because there may come a time I need it, 
and nothing else is going to take its place. Well, the deal is this. Through Christmas Eve, my listeners can enjoy a 30% discount. 30%. No sales tax and free shipping. That's an amazing deal. And it's only for my listeners and only from lifesavingfood.com. All you have to do is use the coupon code HIDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout to claim that deal. You got one week to go, better jump on it. They make great gifts too, by the way. Trust me, people will be glad to know that they are just a little more self-reliant as a result of what you gave them. All right, back to this uh, article by Glenn Greenwald, The Real Disinformation Agents. He says, on December 10th, MSNBC aired a morning or a segment rather on Morning Joe, a purported news report featuring its host, Joe Scarborough, former GOP congressman from Florida, and its regular paid contributor, Claire McCaskill, former two-term Democratic senator from Missouri, that packed one lie after the next into two short minutes. Now, the pair was purporting to explain to its audience the implications of last week's ruling by a British court approving the Biden Department of Justice's request to extradite Julian Assange to the U.S. to stand trial on espionage charges in connection with the 2010 publication by WikiLeaks in partnership with numerous mainstream media outlets, a cache of secret documents revealing various war crimes, lies, and corruptions on the part of the U.S. and U.K. governments and their allies. Within the span of two minutes, he says these NBC personalities told four blatant lies about the Assange case. And he says, I don't mean that they asserted dubious opinions or questionable narratives or even misleading claims. Greenwald says, I mean they outright lied about four separate matters that are crucial to understanding the Biden administration's attempted extradition and prosecution of Assange. Now, these lies were not just misleading, but pernicious, as they were designed not to merely mislead the public, but to provoke them to believe that one of the gravest attacks on press freedom in years, the imprisonment of a journalist for the crime of reporting true and accurate information about the crimes of power centers, is something viewers should applaud rather than denounce. And he says, we took the time to dissect this segment and amass the dispositive proof of their multiple lies, not because we think Scarborough and McCaskill will pay any price or will have to retract any of this. Of course they will not. They are doing their job, which is to lie in a way that flatters the ideological preconceptions of NBC viewers who hate Assange due to the role his reporting played in harming the Democratic Party during the 2016 election, which Hillary Clinton herself claims was one of the two primary reasons she lost. Greenwald says, we did this video report in order to illustrate how easily and reflexively these corporate outlets lie. To demonstrate that the public's view that these outlets are completely untrustworthy and contemptible is valid and correct. And to set the record straight about the Assange case. Greenwald says, we realize that not all subscribers here want to watch a one-hour video. And for that reason, he says, as we do with all of the video reports we produce, we will shortly produce a written transcript of the program for our Substack subscribers. But he says, I really hope people will take the time to watch this particular video since the lies came in the form of video. Therefore, he says, we concluded that using video to highlight the severity and intentionality of this lying was the most effective way to demonstrate how noxious it really is. And it's tagged right at the very end of the article. I think you would find it well worth your time 
to to sit and watch this. It's about an hour long video, but you know, I I don't want to sound like I'm too big of a fanboy. I don't want to sound like I'm I'm trying to put uh, um, Glenn Greenwald and those who work with him, you know, up on a pedestal and say they are above reality. I just know from firsthand experience, finding reliable, trustworthy sources of information is tough. You, I mean, you've got your work cut out for you if you want to really find people who have an informed take that aren't trying to, to manipulate you into some mental corner. You know, you got to believe this and don't ever question what I'm saying. Glenn Greenwald is one of the best sources of information that I've found simply because he does not burden whatever he's reporting on with judgment. He isn't he isn't a narrative manager. He's a true reporter and he'll put the facts out there and let people draw their own conclusions. And may, I don't know I don't know why but that just that gives me hope. It also makes me a little bit afraid for Glenn because Look, Julian Assange is being treated as a, as a broker for information, or an information broker, which is, is kind of a fancy way of alluding to he might be a spy. He's an information broker. He just sells that information to whoever has the highest, you know, bid. So I worry for Glenn Greenwald, because if the U.S. government can go after, prosecute, and either put away for life or potentially execute, I guess, if it's espionage, you know, someone like like Julian Assange, that puts a target on the back of every real journalist out there in the world. Not because they're all doing investigative journalism, not because they're all, you know, highlighting what whistleblowers are saying. But it establishes a precedent that you're not a journalist unless we say you're a journalist. Well, since when did freedom of the press become a government-granted privilege? I know some people might misunderstand and think, well, now, Brian, come on. Uh, you know, First Amendment talks about freedom of the press. Therefore, why it's right there in the Constitution. This is something the government, you know, the, the Constitution grants us that right. So I want to correct that misconception. You know what the most important right is given to us by the Constitution? That's a trick question. Because the Constitution gives us no rights. What it does is it recognizes pre-existing natural rights. And this is underscored in the Bill of Rights with very strict admonitions to government. These are off limits. And they include the natural rights of, for instance, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of religion, you know, the ability to uh, petition for redress of grievances, the petition to gather, you know, to, to come together and, and to discuss things, freedom of the press, etc., and all of the other parts of the Bill of Rights, they are restrictions on the federal government itself. They are not permission slips for you and me just waiting for some judge to, you know, divine out this meaning that here's, here's what the Constitution says you can do. In the plainest possible terms, the Constitution is nothing more than a contract between the various states who signed on to it and who became part uh, of the Union that defines the upper limits of government power at the federal level and restricts it to those powers alone. It's not a blank check. It never was. And it's only because we've uh, turned a lot of reality on its head over the last uh, 150 years or so that we have confusion over issues like this. So when someone asks you, what's the most important right that the Constitution gives you, you should be able to confidently tell them, confidently tell them, no rights. 
The Constitution gives me nothing. What it gives government is very explicit instructions on these are the powers you can exercise under these circumstances, and these are the limitations on your power. Period, bucko. I hope you'll take the time to check out Glenn Greenwald's article, and better still, I hope you'll watch this excellent video, Four Lies in the Space of Two Minutes. I don't know what much, how much more would it take to convince you that, hey, maybe... Maybe even my favorite flavor of news outlet isn't being, you know, perfectly straight with me. It's good to have a healthy sense of skepticism. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So here's a question for you to ponder. Are states that have greater freedom less safe? Oh, you know, you know that we've we've heard this argument in various forms. In fact, let's follow it up with a question. Are the people who are flocking to Texas and Florida and Idaho, are they going there so they can feel less safe? See, as one of those individuals who uh, migrated earlier this year, I feel like I might be able to answer that question. And the answer is no, I didn't go to Idaho because if I move there, it'll make me feel less safe. Uh, when I moved to Idaho, I came, uh, well, first of all, I'm just, I'll just be straight up with you. I came because I felt uh, moved upon, like I felt like God was directing me. Now is the time for you to be closer to your family members here and also to, to be, you know, in, in southern Idaho. And I know that may sound mystical and weird to some people, but uh, I've become pretty good over the last 25 years or so at uh, being able to be directed when necessary. You know, if, if it's time to, to go, it's time to go. But one of the things that made it a very easy transition, or at least a very easy decision, to come to Idaho was I started visiting, I guess it was back in January, just going to visit family. And, and the thing I kept noticing everywhere I went was a sense that life was actually pretty normal. This doesn't mean that there were no people, you know, suffering and dying from COVID. It's, it, and, you know, it, can, it still continues. I still know of people who are dealing with it. But generally, the public was going on with life. People who felt vulnerable were masked up and, you know, isolating themselves or otherwise, you know, doing what they could to, to keep distance, to protect themselves. But I saw very few people living in fear. And after what we had been through in the months previous to that, throughout all of 2020, it was such a breath of fresh air. I've got a great article here from Casey Carlisle who convincingly um, explains, if you really want to be safe, then leave people alone. Now see if you can follow the reasoning here. To me, this made a lot of sense. Casey Carlisle says, with the needless panic over the latest coronavirus variant, The parasitic caste, that would be the politicians, seem very much interested in repeating the previous administration's blunders. Despite many of those very same people characterizing the other guy's actions as brazen assaults on civil liberties. Now, whether people are finally fed up with the tax fed remains uh, to, to be seen, but he says, I'm not holding my breath. If the latest political edicts are just rebranded tricks from March of 2020... 
And he says, I fear that an overwhelming majority will happily comply, so long as safety is the justification. If you accept that less than 10% of the population are brave enough to say no more, which is easier, convincing 90% of the population to change their mind or showing them an easier path to their beloved safety. Now, Casey Carlisle says, look, if the electorate is becoming increasingly divided, then why in our democracy aren't predators among the political class paralleling said division? The more that the political left lurch leftward, the more that most on the political right seem only to indignantly drop anchor. Why aren't one side's political attacks on liberty met with equally potent attacks on coercion? Which has more bite, scolding the Occupational Safety and Health Administration or writing a bill to abolish it? Amending the state's malignant growth will do nothing to halt its trajectory. Only abolishment will provide meaningful reform. So why is that bill an anomaly rather than the norm? He says the vast majority of the electorate yearn for safety. So why won't the liberty-loving cater to that desire in a manner that's antithetical to their opponent's strategy? For example, getting mugged is just as unsafe as it sounds. So imagine the political points awarded to the party who get to claim responsibility for abolishing the Internal Revenue Service. After all, love of wealth isn't partisan. Some might argue that reform is easier on the ears than abolish, and therefore abolish lacks mass appeal. But what's the alternative? The answer is the status quo. And he says, I'm as guilty as the next American for having a pathetically short memory. But my goodness, we're talking about the 9-11 of 2020, not the original. So it sure would be great to try something new because, as I wrote in June, to say that the misery of the last 15 months can't be repeated brings new meaning to the term wishful thinking. So how about telling the 90% something they might actually hear? Safety is liberty. Robert Barnes has always said, you're not safe if you're not free. The past 20-plus months bolster Barnes' claim and vivify how tragically determined the lockdowners are to repeat their liberty-crushing strategies for achieving safety. Donald Boudreaux recently repeated the oft-ignored warning, beware of unintended consequences. So perhaps the cast of characters this time around will be more receptive to the fact that unnatural interventions produce far more negative, unintended consequences than does natural human action. With consent, one intends to produce something that inherently seeks to avoid negative, unintended consequences. But with politics, one intends to destroy something at the intended expense of a persecuted group. From H. L. Mencken's nineteen twenty six Notes on Democracy, quote, The average man does not want to be free. He simply wants to be safe. End quote. And again, the past twenty months prove Mencken a sage as strongly as Barnes's observation sagacious. Mencken implies that the average man can have one or the other, but Barnes makes it clear that one can have both. Isn't it obvious that people flourish in actual safety? Are people flocking to Florida, Texas, and Idaho in order to feel unsafe? But the thing is, when safety is imposed, everyone is less safe. Safety is liberty. Liberty is consent. Lockdowns violate consent. Mandates violate consent. Prohibitions violate consent. All are political, so all lack consent and safety. 
not as it's and and, and there's nothing contractual about politics. <clears throat> but those who worship it regard liberty as an obstacle to safety, not as its foundation. So the unintended consequences of unnatural interventions will likely be unsafe, as evidenced by the most restricted states. So highlighting the consequences of liberty is likely more effective than disparaging the consequences of coercion. You want to be safe? Then leave people alone. Want to jeopardize your safety? Well, then don't mind your own business. Now, Casey Carlisle says, don't get me wrong. I'm just as repulsed by the gleeful cowardice as the next guy. But I have to ask myself and the like-minded, other than the short-lived satisfaction gained from ridiculing the parasites and their sycophants, wouldn't we rather sell them something? And the idea that we're selling is mutually beneficial. Hating them is a dead end on their own street. Showing them of other ways that provide what they seek produces more intended consequences. And because safety is subjective, all but the paternalists seek similar ends but different means. So when given the choice between mandating safety and actually being safe, will the perpetually paranoid pursue forced safety or will they embrace the safety to which is mutually consented, one that allows each individual to interpret safety to their own liking? Casey Carlisle says, I'd like to make it easier for them to choose the latter, not give them excuses to double down on the never-ending insanity. So no need to stop hating the parentalists or the paternalists. But he says, if our scathing rebuttals don't conclude with an elevator pitch, what's the point? I feel like this kind of reinforces something that has become sort of an unofficial motto, at least for me, for the last few years, and that is, better to be known for what you stand for than simply what you're against. And I realize that can be a thin line to walk. It's, it's, it's not always easy to do because some of the things that, uh, that are being forced upon us and have been forced on us over the last couple of years, I mean, I, I feel a strong urge to stand up and vigorously oppose them. I want to name names. I want to point fingers and you know, tell them, these are the people responsible. I want people held accountable for the destruction and the suffering that they've caused. But again, you know, I, I have to stop and step back and ask myself, what's really motivating me here? Is it a desire for vengeance? Is it a desire to control the people who want to control me? So it's a good reminder. You know, be sure people know what you stand for more so than simply, oh yeah, he's against this or she's against that. I realize it takes extra effort. But if the goal really is something as lofty as individual liberty, if it's something as important as property rights, if it's something as essential as freedom of conscience, well, then that puts a, that puts a burden on us to use the highest and best means possible to promote that message. In other words, we can't fudge the facts and we can't engage in coercion. We shouldn't browbeat and we shouldn't shame I guess to put it to, to put it more delicately, we should be inspiring people to consider embracing that point of view rather than requiring them to do so. Is it hard to inspire? Yeah, sometimes, but it's worth it. This is the Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm going to send some love out in the direction of SewingQuiltingCenter.com. For my St. George, Utah listeners, this is a very familiar place. After all, this is a business started by Ken Harker back in 1984. You know, in that time, it has only changed owners two times, and now it's owned by Teresa and Eric Alsop. And they are wonderful people, and I'm just here to tell you that whether you're into sewing or not, sewing is a big deal. There is a subculture among us that lives and breathes sewing, quilting, uh, embroidery, and if, if you're not one of them, that's okay, but I'll bet you know somebody who is. So if you're looking for baby lock sergers, brother sewing and embroidery machines, uh, or handy quilter long-arm quilting machines, you'll find them all at SewingQuiltingCenter.com. You can also visit the store if you're in the St. George area, 779 South Bluff Street. Look, they sell the machines. They can service them. They can actually train you how to use those machines. And I'm thinking having the ability to create or, for that matter, to maintain and fix your own clothing or create things like this would be a really good thing to have. Of course, you can get fabric, thread, all the things you need right there in one location. Click on the link that I provide in the show notes or better still stop in and see them. Again, thanks to SewingQuiltingCenter.com for being one of my sponsors. So if you want to be safe, leave people alone. I don't know if you bought into it or not, but I think it was an idea worth considering. Along those same lines, got a great essay from Joaquin Book on the virtues of leaving people alone. Which, if nothing else, is just a great reminder about how most of the things we get wound up over are things we choose to let us let uh, upset us. Joaquin Book, this was a piece he wrote back in October of 2020, says, A few years ago, I encountered this hilarious video where a scooping journalist wanted a juicy opinion out of a student. Now, it might have been at an American university, and the topic was at a, was a school that had just installed gender-neutral bathrooms. Shocking, explosive stuff, sure to ruffle some feathers. But unfortunately for this journalist, she'd stumbled across a libertarian one of those ethically stringent and consistent types that followed the logic of their ideological persuasion to its radical end. So when the journalist asked this individual's opinion on the new bathrooms, he responded, I don't care. But what do you think about anyone, man or woman, use the same bathrooms as if he hadn't understood the question? The answer, I don't care. Well, what if you're in the bathroom and a woman is in there too? Doesn't that bother you? I don't care. Now, Joaquin Book says the journalist was noticeably flustered. She wasn't getting anywhere with this guy. No juicy quote, no indignation capable of being broadcast as news elsewhere. And he says to most people, this is a a superficial interpretation of nihilism. Ruthless, awful, distasteful individualism that doesn't care one straw for other people or the society in which they live. These the, The kind of people who want to see the world burn. But he says that's probably not true. Our unruly libertarian probably cares about his cat, his family, his loved ones, his favorite band or football team. We all do. He has just enough intellectual decency not to let his personal feelings get in the way of his thoroughly decent ideological conviction. The lives that others live are none of your business. What others do with their bathroom visits is not his concern. Which clothes others wear, who they sleep with, what they mix in their coffees, what substances they put in their bodies, what they do for a living, 
What they eat, how that's produced, where they travel, how they get there, is none of his business, to each his own. This libertarian understood what so few people are willing to understand these days. Other people's opinions, beliefs, words, or convictions are not some indication of their societal value, representing or reflecting their position in some cosmic battle between us, the good guys, and them, the evil guys. How much somebody pretends to care about meaningless or contradictory things is not some essential feature of their identity, crucial to others' life. It's none of your business. So instead of snapping, I don't care, which sounds a little too detached for me, he says, I normally use, you do you, girl. The sentiment is the same. To each his or her own. And I think he actually uses some Latin here. De gustibus non est disputandum. I hope I said that right. There's no accounting for taste. I don't know what you like or want, in economic jargon, what your preferences are or what your constraints are. If you want to sleep with men or really don't want to sleep with men, that's on you. If you want to burn flags or books, that's on you. I just demand that you voluntarily buy them first. If you want to have intercourse with a dead chicken before you eat it, he says, be my guest. And yes, I stole these examples from Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, if that wasn't clear. It is human to have instinctual feelings of disgust to one or many of these actions. What Haid was trying to do is conjure up scenarios where those feelings of distrust, or disgust rather, have absolutely no damage to anyone else. Now what libertarianism is about is overriding those feelings with reason. Accepting that nobody was physically harmed or nobody's property rights violated, so the practice may go on. None of your business. Now he says this is actually explosive stuff, revolutionary even. Quite literally world-changing, as Deidre McCluskey and Art Carden outline in a new book coming out this month, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich. How the bourgeoisie deal, how the bourgeois rather deal with, how the bourgeois deal enriched the world. Whew. Had to struggle to get through that one. The bottom line is, don't interfere with other people. Leave them be. Don't run around and police their divergent, innocent opinions and tastes. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. Your liberty to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. Until then, or when you can readily foresee such a swing, leave people alone. The obviousness of anarchy, as legal scholar John Hasness remarked. My life is none of your business. Your life is none of my concern. You do you, girl. Now, I understand. You may, you may disagree. And I, and I have to strike a balance because at some level, I think that uh, I think God expects us to look out for one another. But I want to qualify that statement by saying I don't think he expects us to look out for one another as in I need to treat you like you are my pet and correct you and dictate to you the way that things are going to be or else. I mean, come on, it's, it's the Christmas season. The people who are out there looking for ways to serve and to uplift and to otherwise reaffirm the value of the people around them, be it that homeless person standing at the freeway off-ramp, you know, seeking donations or uh, some would call it just panhandling, you know, whatever you prefer. Or maybe it's just a neighbor who's, uh, you know, suffered a, a loss of a loved one and is, is going through a time of crushing loneliness during the holidays. 
I think we have, you know, a God-given duty. But it's a voluntary kind of thing. You can't just go out there and draft somebody. And, and, and really, who wants to be the project, right? Nobody, nobody wants to think of themselves as, oh, look, people came over because pitiful me. You know, they think I'm their project and they're here to fix me. I hope you can see the point that uh, the things that we get most worked up about, the things that make us angry and sometimes make us reflexively snap into, I need to fix that and I need to make sure that everybody knows, um, you know, the, the idea that uh, you can't fly that flag, that flag offends some people and it's my crusade to make sure your flag goes away. Some people might be happy, but it's still an example of coercive and imposition of what I think is best because I know better than you. That's, that's not a great way to help people. Just leave them alone. Anything that's peaceful should really be none of our business. At the same time, that doesn't mean we're all taking the Ayn Rand approach of, you know, you're on your own. <laughs> Tough luck, but, you know, I guess you'll figure it out. We can be there to support people. That's got to take place voluntarily. In fact, truly, if, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, charity has to be voluntary in order for it to be charity. I guess that's one of the things I love so much about the Christmas season is I see people's, uh, uh, their, their defenses or at least their reluctance to engage in charitable behavior and charitable acts. The resistance goes down. And I think it has to do with the spirit of the season, but it it has to be a voluntary thing. If it's something that, you know, well, we took this money out of your paycheck, Brian, and now we're going to go uh, give it to the needy to make sure that uh, nobody goes hungry. That may be a fine and lofty goal, but the bottom line is, at some level, coercion was used to take something that was mine and then put it to a use that somebody else deemed, you know, the highest possible use. Will some good be accomplished? Perhaps. And definitely some bureaucrat will skim a little off the top, you know, for overhead. But the real virtue, the authentic virtue, is found in us voluntarily finding ways to serve, lift one another, or I guess in another way to say it, to help each other find our way home. This is The Brian Hyde Show.